What we're going to talk about today is, um, is an important critical issue in the life of our church and gets to the core of one of our, one of our passions. Um, I don't know if you're aware that the very first churches that dotted the landscape of the Roman Empire in the first century were multi-ethnic, were multiracial, and were multi-class. I say, well, how do you know that, Peter? Do a little bit of church history, studying it, but also um, the letters, otherwise known as epistles in the New Testament. When you read the letters, these are real letters written to first century churches all over the Roman Empire. Paul is writing. Some of us are like, really, that's in there? It's in there. Paul is writing to a group of people, a churches dotted all over the Roman Empire, who are struggling to make sense of this reality that all of a sudden in this community were people that they hated, were people that they ignored, were people that they avoided. So in churches like this, they were wrestling now with what does it mean that I as a Jewish person now is sitting next to a Gentile? What does it mean that I, as a male, is now sitting next to a female? What does it mean that I, who is a master or a free person, is sitting next to a slave? And they're trying to make sense of these things. And so Paul writes these letters, the New Testament, the epistles, to guide them. Now listen very carefully to the next couple sentences. These multiracial, multiethnic, multi-class churches weren't just the result of the gospel, but they became the reason why people believe the gospel. These multi-ethnic, multiracial, multi-class churches, listen carefully, weren't just a result of conversion. They became the cause of conversion. These multi-ethnic, multi-racial churches gave credibility to the gospel that the apostles were preaching. The people, the unbelieving world, looked at these churches and said... There is something going on there that no human power, no human ingenuity, no social experiment could ever accomplish. Are you with me, church? An example of this is found in the book of Acts, which chronicles the movement of the early church. And in Acts chapter 11, which I'm going to take you in a moment, In Acts chapter 11, we see the gospel going to a large metropolitan city for the first time. And it was a city called Antioch. Antioch chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who have been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, verse 20, however, men from Cyprus, Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Let me tell you a little bit about Antioch. Antioch is the capital of Syria at the time. Antioch is the third largest city in all of the Roman Empire. Antioch is 20 times larger than the city of Jerusalem. It's far more dense, far more pluralistic, far more socially troubled, and far more multi-ethnic because of where Syria is. Historians tell us that in the city of Antioch, you found Chinese people, Indians, Persians, Romans, and Greeks. Antioch is built by a general named Seleucus, who is one of the generals of Alexander. And he names the city after his father, whose name was Antiochus. And Seleucus did something interesting in the city of Antioch. Like other people, he built a huge city at the perimeter of the city of Antioch. So he he built these walls to keep the city safe from other invaders. But then he did something else that was 
Unique and odd. He built these walls, not just outside the city, but also inside the city. Seleucus builds these walls inside the city where historians tell us he divided the city with these walls into 18 different ethnic quarters. Why? Because in a racial incident in the city, Galita deadly violence. And so in order to keep these ethnicities and races apart, Seleucus builds not just the city, well, outside the city, but inside the city. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 22, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Verse 23, when he arrived and saw the evidence, everybody say evidence, saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. What was it that, Antioch, what was it that Barnabas saw in Antioch? And this is the amazing thing about what the gospel did. What Barnabas saw and what led others in Jerusalem to run to Antioch to see is that for the very first time in history, different races of people came out of their ethnic quarters, crossed dividing walls, and began to meet in one another's homes where they ate together. Or they worship together. For the first time in history, the Roman world stood in awe as they saw hated groups of people breaking down dividing walls, literally. Watching them walking to the marketplace arm in arm. Watching them Raising their children together. Watching them marrying one another. Watching them burying one another. Verse 25. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called, pay attention to this, Christians first at Antioch. Significance for the first time. What was happening in Antioch was so radical that the people, the Bible says, were called Christians. Significance of that. Up till this time, you defined a religion by people's ethnicity and race. So you had Judaism, the Jewish religion. You had Greek religion. But for the first time, a religion so inclusive that they literally had to come up with a different name. We'll call them Christians. This new multi-ethnic, multi-racial community wasn't just a result of the gospel. It became the reason why people believe the gospel. It gave credibility to the gospel that the apostles were preaching. I'm going to stop right here and say this. In an audience like this, I need to say this. When I say they gave evidence to the gospel that people were preaching, there are large numbers of people who say, I grew up in church, Peter, where the gospel was Jesus Christ died for my sins so I can go to heaven. And we love that. Don't get us wrong. We love, can I get an amen? <laughs> we love that. Sometimes you're like, he doesn't care about that. What do you, I love that. He came and died for my sins so that I can be reconciled to a holy God. Praise God for that. But, that's a part of the gospel. That's a portion of the gospel. The gospel that the apostles preach, to which this multi-ethnic, multiracial community gave credibility to, don't take my words, here's Paul's words. Here's the gospel. Colossians 1.19. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, verse 20, and through him say the following together with me. Ready, church? To reconcile to himself all things, things on earth and heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. <laughs> the gospel 
that the Bible affirms is that God is on a mission, thank you, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. Can I get an amen? All things. And yes, that includes reconciliation with the holy God. But gosh darn it, it also includes reconciliation with each other. Reconciliation literally means to put things back together. And the life and death, the resurrection of Christ was nothing less than to reconcile us to God, reconcile us to each other, and reconcile all of creation. This is exactly what God has always been about, what he will be about until he returns. To re- listen, to reduce the gospel to individual salvation is to tragically misunderstand the purpose of God in the world. God is out to reconcile all things that includes you and God, but us to each other. Now, how will the world know that this reconciling gospel is what God is about? In Ephesians 3.10, his intent was that now, say the following with me. Ready? Through the church. Once again, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known according to his eternal purpose, which accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible says over and over again, you, us, we, we have the mission to make this reconciling work of God known to the world. We, us, we have the mission to embody and demonstrate this reconciling work of God made known to the world. The watching world must see in us, in the church, the work of God, bringing people together who are alienated from each other. One of the most powerful, tangible ways in which we embody and demonstrate this reconciling work of God is through a reconciled, multi-ethnic, multiracial church we we embody in our lives together the work of reconciliation we our mission is nothing less than the unbelieving world must look here us and say there is a place where God is bringing people together and if God can do that there he can do it out there Are you hearing me? How will your unbelieving friends, my unbelieving friends, who look at a world torn and divided and broken and say, you want me to believe that there is a God who's going to put all that back together again? And unanswered it needs to be, yes, I need to believe that. Why? You say, look at us. My question, is that happening in here? Hello, anybody? Is that happening in here? Can we say to the unbelieving world, you want to see, you want proof that God will one day put all things back together? Watch us. (laughs) Can the world see In you and me, people united in love who could never have been brought back together if not for Jesus. I I say this all the time. Do you know how you have encountered the gospel? If you can say, Peter, there are friendships in my life whom apart from Jesus and the city, we would never have been put together. Is there somebody in your life who you could look and say, this Impossible outside of Jesus. Have you encountered the gospel? I'm going to invite a a panel up here. Much more I want to say, but I want you to hear from them. Today, I'm going to invite a panel. And these folks aren't experts. They're not people who've been there and done that. 
they're ordinary folks like you, like me, who are part of our church. They're part of our church family. And I've asked them to come up as we talk about this as a church and what this means. So I'm going to invite the panelists to come on up. And as they come up, I need you to give them a thundering applause because some of them are scared out of their minds. Not Dan, though. <laughs> so panelists, come on up. Thank you, sir. As we start, I'm just going to quickly ask you guys to um, identify yourselves by your name, okay, real quick, um, so that we at least get to know your face and your name. Start right there. My name is Tim. Dan. Oyan. Angela. I'm Kimmy. Anthony. Okay. Let's just jump right in, okay? Let's just jump right in. So while we celebrate Dr. King's contributions to America this weekend, we remember that he insisted that the church exists as a conscience of the state, speaking prophetically to those in power. How have recent events in our country where we were reminded that our country and even our city remains deeply divided across racial lines made you reflect on the significance of this coming weekend? So anybody start out for us? Just well, confirmed what I've known for years. That's very true. Thank you. Um, I, it's been really challenging, um, especially this season in my life, thinking about the significance of Dr. King, um, especially thinking about the season of black lives really do matter. Um, and Dr. King has always said that, um, but it looks like the church is just catching up to that. Um, and in my... 30-something years, that's what I've been living as a black woman, and um, hearing Dr. King's words and being reminded of his words that he fought for black lives to be matter, to matter, and we should be fighting for black lives to matter as well, um, and that he just wasn't quiet about it, that he was loud about it, but I think we want to remember him as a quiet person, but he also was a loud person. And so for me, that's very significant to not just be quiet, to also be loud about the significance of his words and his teachings. Um, and I grew up in a family where you couldn't forget that, so I try to live that out um, every day. Um, and sometimes it's more challenging than others, um, especially in the context that I daily work in. But um, I'm doing the best that I can in remembering Dr. King's words and also the words of other men and women, um, especially during the Civil Rights Movement, because it just wasn't men. It was also women. So that's good while we are on the panel to be a reminder of that. Um, so this week there was a recording that was found of Dr. King, one of Dr. King's speeches um, towards the end of his life and... Um, he actually mentioned that, you know, some people may feel like, oh, we've come so far, um, but we have so much far to, more to go to that concept idea. And I felt like, my gosh, that could be said today. Mm -hmm. um, and ref I've been reflecting a lot on the hashtag or concept of um, um, Black Lives Matter, and I've gotten into a lot of arguments with people telling me, no, shouldn't it be all lives matter? I was like, yes, but, um, is what I've said to a lot of people. And yes, you know, as an Asian American woman, I faced my own kind of racism and been targeted for particular kinds of bias and hatred, but at this moment, at this time in this country, there's just way too much evidence to show us that for too many people, black lives don't matter. Mm. 
And so for me in this moment, it is about needing to recognize that um, we all need to come together in solidarity mm -hmm. to make it so that black lives do matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anybody else on the panel? Significance of this weekend? So, so one of the things, when, in light of what you said, that we've seen is that the folks from our culture have said, you know, we're focusing too much on the issue of race. Why can't we just embrace a colorblind approach? Why does race have to matter so much? Why does one's ethnicity matter so much? And we hear this a lot from the church as well. So I ask you, by the way, so we're going to get real today, okay? Is that a, so why is a colorblind approach not just not helpful, but dangerous? So I, I teach on these matters, actually. So the most simplistic way I've, most simplistic metaphor I've come up with is if, you, if your body was riddled with cancer, but you don't know it, wouldn't you, and there's a good chance of being healed, but only if you confront it. If you don't acknowledge it, it will wreak havoc on your body, right? And so that's the most simplistic way I've thought about it. I mean, we have to remember that race is a social construct, but racism and the effects are material and real and have significant real effects. Right, so racism is real, right? Race, as in like our skin color looks different or whatever. Um, genetically and biologically, there are such little, little difference. But socially, there are vast differences in, in real violence that comes out from it. And to ignore that is to ignore hurt and pain and struggle and just a disease that continues to just destroy us. So I'll add to that, that the, the history of this country has been founded on pursuing this goal of whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, first off, that's the, the problem with the whole colorblind concept, is that this country was founded on that fact. How you look determines what you get, where you live, who is truly human. And that has also, uh, it also crept its way into theology. And uh, uh, the colonists used that to, they used theology, they used God to um, colonize a bunch of other people groups. Um, so I think that's the huge issue is, is seeing the history. Everything has been set up based on race. The problem now in the church too, we talk about Christ, we're one in Christ, that's true but it's to also see the realities that, um, that still exist because we exist in this system that has been based on race, how you look. And it still exists today. Um, it's still very real. Um, and you can imagine some of the faces I get, uh, even when it's cold and I walk into a building with my hat and my gloves and my scarf on, the looks I might get that might be different from what you might get. Uh, if I step into a room, I am a threat to some. Um, and some of you may not have that same experience, but that's still very real. So that, that's the issue with the colorblind approach. The other part of the colorblind approach <laughs> is that we miss what God created. Um, that God did make us beautiful, made us different. My skin complexion, the shape of my nose, all of that is God's creation. And the same uh, as yours. So I would say to my white brothers and sisters, <laughs> this is not a thing for you to hate your complexion and your hair texture and your nose. It, it's, it's, <laughs> this is God's creation. But it's also to identify what has happened in this culture. In fact, when she just said genetics, I mean, you're, my, my nose, my skin color is a very small portion of <laughs> genes. <laughs> Uh, but yet, you see what Satan has done to make that the all that mm -hmm. that is focused on. So, mm -hmm. um, so I'm white. <laughs> I'm practically see-through. Um, 
And I grew up in a world that was full of white people, frankly. Um, and I don't know if any of you can. Kimmy, just real quick. Yeah. We're going to do this throughout the day. Show of hands. How many of us grew up in primarily, and we really need you to do this, primarily homogenous communities? Raise your hand high. Church, look around. Look around. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm not alone. Um, yeah, so I grew up in an entirely white environment for the most part. Um, and I think that the idea of colorblindness comes, I can speak from my own experience, from white folk. Because we, we are in school and we open up history books and there's a bunch of white people in them. We go to the, any advertisement you can think of in the 80s and 90s and it was all white people. Everything was selling us, telling us, making us believe that we were literally the only people in this country, frankly. Mm -hmm. and, and in a really subversive way, the only people uh, of value in this country. And as a child, I didn't know that. I couldn't pinpoint that to know that that's what I was being told or taught. And I have to have some grace for the fact that I hope my parents didn't fully comprehend it either, because mm -hmm. that makes them really horrible. Mm -hmm. um, but that color blindness, I think, was a product of mm -hmm only seeing one color mm. and only being around one type of person and not just color but like one type of socioeconomic group mm. one type of education mm. one type of of culture mm. um and i think it really it really has from my experience was uh, exposure to different people and different ways of life and different cultures that opened me up to a world of difference i didn't have rice people i didn't eat rice until I was 19 years old. <laughs> Rice. So let's just talk about a colorblind, if that's a way to define that, homogenous worldview. Um, and that is definitely a problem, so. That's Boy, I wish you could see right the looks there. on your faces when she said that. No, no, I'm sorry. That's why I'm on this panel, so. The, the other aspect of colorblindness, which I think, I think Kimmy's getting to, is, is part of it is colorblindness. You're asking people to check who they are at the door, mm -hmm. to, to lay down culture, to lay down experience. Mm -hmm. And if that was um, everybody was being asked to do that, that's one thing. I think that's incomplete. Mm -hmm. That's wrong still. Mm -hmm. But that's not. You're asking people to check who they are at the door to enter into somebody else's culture. Mm -hmm. And in America, it's white culture. Mm -hmm. um, Often white folks, we, we say we don't have culture. Um, we don't have those experiences. I've often heard white folks like, um, express some sort of uh, envy towards uh, people of color of like, oh, you have culture. To, to ask a white person to describe culture is like asking a fish to describe water. Mm -hmm. How does a fish describe water? It's just, it's, it's everywhere. It's all around. For white folks, uh, and I include myself in that, I, I grew up in a very white culture. I'm biracial, but uh, half white. Um, Cultures all around us, and because we're so individualistic, we think, no, that's just how I I am. That's just how my family is. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, there's broad things um, that are true across sections, and it's not one homogeneous thing. You know, Midwest white culture is very different than what my wife grew up in in the Southwest, um, and that's true of every culture. But uh, you have culture. And so when we, we talk about colorblindness, we're asking everybody else to check their stuff at the door and enter into our culture. And I think what you're talking about gets to another controversial, uncomfortable topic, and that's the topic of white privilege. What is it? Does it exist? Yes. Yes, it exists. So I'm not asking just the white folk on stage to speak up, but really, in all seriousness, what is white privilege? And by the way, we're not just, we're not just not going to pick on white folks here. We're going to pick on everybody. Uh, what is white privilege, and does it exist? What does it look like? Well, if you're white, you don't really think of it because it's just, I, I like the analogy of the goldfish in the uh, water. But what, what Tim just said, I think, is, uh, was, is really telling. When he walks into a room, despite the fact that he's much better looking than I am, <laughs> he's much younger than I am, um, he's perceived differently than I am. And it's not just because I'm older than he is. If I was his age and we walked in, I'm, I'm very aware of it. Anybody who thinks that that's not true 
is um, you're fooling yourself. So I think that's part of it. It's this initial, um, you're, you're, there's a perception done. And I think if we're honest, I think almost every one of us, because we're all steeped in sin, every one of us in our own way does that. And I'm not just talking about the white people here. It, it's so ingrained in our world and in our culture and in our society that it's something I think you have to be aware of and try to fight every day. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us are ever cured for the sin of racism, ever. Mm -hmm. Something you have to always fight. About five years ago, I'm, uh, occasionally I make art, and about five years ago I had a piece in uh, the West, a West neighborhood in Chicago. Um, and this was my first sort of raw experience with what, it, what I realized was white privilege, was it, I'm outside, it's kind of cold, and the piece requires me to stand outside and people, other people to stand in this like glass box. It's not that ridiculous, but um, a police officer drives up and typically the work that I do is not necessarily what you would call like legal, but it's not illegal. Because <laughs> um, it usually involves public spaces and you know, other people's property, I don't know. Um, so, so let's talk about white privilege. Um, so this, this police officer drives up and rolls down his window, doesn't get out of the car, just rolls down his window and I like am filled with a rush of anxiety, like this is it, like the popo are on my butt, like I'm gonna get this. And, um, and I'm a good kid, you know, I never broke rules, really important in my life, you know, it was horrible. And you know, they just roll down the window and they look at me and they're like, what's going on here? <laughs> and I'm like, it's art, it's art, and they're like, Really? Could you explain it to us? That sounds super interesting. And I thought they were going to ask me to like take their picture with me or something. And then they just drove away very nicely. Mm. And I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt mm. that the response that I would have gotten had I been any different color than I am mm. would have been very different, especially in the neighborhood I was in, circumstance that it was. Um, and that was one of the first times that I, I didn't feel relieved that they were nice to me. I felt frustrated and angry that I knew that there were people who would have had a much worse experience in that situation and it made me really question what it would look like for me to be somebody else or even as an artist to put somebody who looked different from me in that exact same position and watch what happened um, and it made me really frustrated actually so I think your story just reminds me that um, I think we need to push um, kind of the conversation even further um, I think evangelical spaces really like the term white privilege. I think it's an easier term to talk about. And so in some of the circles that I've spent time in, the term white supremacy have come up often. And I don't say that to talk about the Ku Klux Klan or things like that, but it's, it's a real thing, thinking about white supremacy. And I think when we start to dismantle what that really means, and we can get some, to the heart of some of the issues and concerns, of, especially people of color, um, feel every day um, and try to understand that on a deeper level. Um, why was it okay for the police to be like, oh, you're good, and for me or for another, or for another especially a black male, to be like, uh, you're arrested just for standing on the street corner, but looking like you might be doing something wrong. So there's something to not just the privilege, but even the concept of supremacy that interacts daily in our lives. And that's just one of something that we should think more about. And just thinking just for myself, like how do I think about that daily in my spaces that I'm in? Um, and it's a challenge to think because when I do have white friends and thinking like, I know you're not being a jerk and I know that you do love me, but there's something in the background that doesn't feel right. And sometimes it's hard to point to. And sometimes you're just like, I know... I can point, I know it's something. Um, and so as you just, for myself, if I've studied more and thought about this more, um, that, that white supremacy piece comes out and learning how that can be dismantled. Mm -hmm. And this, I think this part of this journey 
of not just thinking about racial reconciliation, um, but even moving beyond that, um, what does that look like to talk about the hard things and name the hard things and say, like, that's, that's not right. Not just not right, but somebody else is gaining something because of the world that you get to exist in every day. Um, so how many of you remember the whole Don Sterling Clippers thing last year? Yeah, okay. So how many of you know that Don Sterling is guilty of the biggest housing discrimination case this nation has ever caught? I'm going to say caught. Um, and so I feel like that example to me is a perfect example of white supremacy and how it operates within, and colorblind racism and how it operates within our culture. Um, he got lambasted and, you know, completely just dragged throughout the media, as he should have for the words that he said that he was caught on tape for. But his housing in L.A., having gone to UCLA and spent several years in L.A., people knew that Don Sterling was this evil, evil, racist um, landowner um, and landlord. But where was the outcry over that? Mm-hmm. All right, so it's it's really, it brings home for me that in our culture, it's worse to be called a racist than actually to be a racist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we talk about white privilege, uh, often we get into conversations about big picture systems, economics, housing, and all that is true, and we should talk about that. Um, do some research. Uh, the, the statistics, the reality is pretty awful. Um, but there's the day-to-day white privileges um, like Tim talking about, he can walk into a room and feel the fear that people feel with him being there, that he's a threat. Um, one of the key places of white privilege is the ability to disengage from this conversation. Um, for people of color, this is a daily reality, and there is no freedom to disengage. They can never say, okay, I'm done talking about this. I'm done dealing with this. They have to every day. We have to every day. For white folks, we can say, you know what, let's focus on something else. Let's talk about something else. Let's stop making this a bigger issue than it is. Let's stop talking about race all the time. Let's go back to what we were doing before. This happens in all spheres. It happens in the church a lot that we get white fatigue. Um, and when white people say, that, that, that's a real thing, white fatigue. It's the issue of white people being tired of talking about race. Um, and if they say the conversation's over because they have the power and authority, the conversation is over. Can I add one more thing to that? Um, so there's white fatigue, but there's a real thing called racial battle fatigue um, that has health consequences, and there's tons of research at this point in public health um, showing that there's heart disease, mental health, tobacco use, alcohol use, diabetes, high cholesterol, high, high blood pressure, that is inflicted upon people of color because of daily racism. And I think that explains why I don't sleep that well. And so the people that I live with know, they're like, why are you, why don't you sleep well at night? And I think about that and I'm like, because sometimes that there's that anticipation or that fear of when I go to work on Monday, what is it gonna be like? How can I, keep myself on guard? How can I make sure I say the right thing or not say the wrong thing? And I don't want to be too angry at work because I don't want to be the angry black woman. But then I'm sacrificing my voice while I'm at work. So then you're all stressed out all the time about on guard. And what does that look like to not be on guard all the time? But what people, particularly my white coworkers, what they may be thinking of me or not thinking of me. So you're always second guessing. And so um, I came up with an idea that, um, so I have a little like, you know, like Fitbit or whatever it is. And I'm like, maybe I need a racial Fitbit that can help me gauge like how things are going on. Like, how is my health? Am I feeling stressed out in this situation? Just to have a better sense. Oh, so you you have one too. See, so it could be a thing. just to help understand, because I'm like, why has this always been this way? How, why have I always felt stress, stress all the time? I mean, I was up at 4.30 this morning, so I was like, this panel, 
I don't know what it's going to be like. I'm going to say something, and people are going to be like, why are you at this church? Why do you go here? Are you, sh- you can't come back. Um, <laughs> thank you. Because um, I, was, I was anxious of, say, of being too honest, but um, my lovely roommate Blessing, when I left out the door, she was like, be honest. So... I'm going to be honest mm-hmm. on this panel, and hopefully I'll be back next week. <laughs> um, but it's hard. It is hard, and I think those health consequences are true. Real. Um, so I'm going to create a little machine. Yeah. Let me ask this question. What, what, what does racial reconciliation look like for you? And two-part, what are the barriers to living out true biblical racial reconciliation. What does it look like for you? What are the barriers? Well, I think the primary barrier is culture, um, what we've been talking about so far. And what does it look like to me? Well, it, it looks like to me when I, when I start trying to be, to not want to talk about the issue or not confront the issue, I thought back to when I was 18 years of age and uh, uh, successful in the eyes of the world, but sprinting toward hell. Mm-hmm. And the Lord brought a man into my life, I'll probably cry, but I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. Named Reverend Eddie Williams, who was an African-American Pentecostal pastor who met me and saw something in me when I was 18 years of age, working in the summer in the steel mill after my freshman year. And I wish I could tell you I came to faith then, but he discipled me and stuck with me for 13 years mm. till I came to faith. So just like Obama said in his speech when they wanted him to renounce Reverend Wright, Uh, that he could no more renounce Reverend Wright than he could his own white mother and white grandparents. Uh, How could I renounce Pastor Williams? So to me, racial reconciliation is one-on-one. You're not going to change the world individually. I'm not trying to tell you not to. Try to. But really where it happens is one-on-one with friendship, with fellowship, which becomes family, which is one of the 942 reasons why Wendy and I love New Community so much. Mm-hmm. So it's one-on-one. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I go, <clears throat> um, I have to start with, um, I think many times when we come to this conversation, we start at the wrong place. This is just my opinion. Um, I, I don't think we can start reconciliation by talking about white privilege or talking about this or that. Um, for me, I go back to uh, let's first talk about what did God intend for creation, mm-hmm. um, and then let's talk about the the entrance of sin, uh, because that that's really the root Amen. of racism. Amen. It's this issue of human sin that plagues each and every one of us. Um, so I would start there, um, and then let's talk about. <laughs> the redemption that is in Christ. Mm-hmm. And now we start talking about, now what does this redemption look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, we can see what sin has ravaged, what it has destroyed. Now let's talk about what this means. What is Christ bringing mm-hmm. and doing in us? Um, and then that opens the door for us to have the conversation like we're having now as brothers and sisters. Yes, we're one in Christ, but there are some serious disparities here that we have to identify. So for me, Christ is not the one that allows us to glaze over it, but actually gives us the right foundation to identify it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I would start, mm-hmm. is that reconciliation. It's coming back to the foundation of what Christ is doing, what he's done. To me, that has to be the root. Um, because marches and all this stuff aren't going to do anything. If we're not dealing with human sin, we're not dealing with what Christ, because that's the thing, too, is the church, we're showing the kingdom of God. And it's very different uh, than just what the world is pursuing. Um, and, and so if we have to have a solid root, a solid foundation, so that's where I would start. 
And then it's the hard conversations in the church. It's not just hallelujah, praise the Lord, you're my brother. It, it, it's also being willing to identify, uh, okay, you are my brother, but there's a problem here because if you move into my neighborhood, there's a problem that people are going to have with you being there. So I need to identify that issue and start challenging things like that. Or even if it's a simple, yeah, certain stores you walk into just because of how you look, they're going to treat you a certain way. Uh, or there are assumptions, even getting back to what we talk about white privilege, um, I think Anthony was getting at that. It, it's just, it's the daily graces that are given to you that are not extended to other people. It's the benefit of doubt that's given to you on a regular basis that's not extended to other people. It's the trust that is given to you uh, that's not <laughs> extended to other people. I can tell you many a times where I'm just walking home from work, there's somebody else that's walking in front of me, and they decide to cross the street uh, because simply because I'm there and I pose a threat. But reconciliation, let's, let's get to the foundation of Christ and deal with the sin that's in all of us. Mm -hmm. um, and that's ongoing uh, because it's not just for white folks. I have to say that too um, uh, because there are other issues in all of us. I mean, that potential is in all of us. That's what I'm getting at. We deal with the reality here. Yes, in this culture, yes, it's white supremacy. But that potential is in every last one of us mm -hmm. still. So. so racial reconciliation for me, um, this, yeah, that was beautiful. Um, I'm going to get really real now because of <laughs> is um, for me, it's been about looking really deep inside my heart and recognizing that white supremacy has operated in me through my experiences and into my heart to create barriers for between myself and other Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. All right. I've, I've, I've experienced a deep, deep sense of internalized racism through my life. And part of that was because of my growing up experiences in a working class white immigrant community um, in Massachusetts that told me every day I didn't belong here, that uh, I didn't have really human value. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to fight every day. My first fist fight, I was four. Mm -hmm. um, and so what did I do from that with teachers who said, sticks and stones just walk away? You know, you can't fight back. Mm -hmm. You get detention and you get expelled if you fight back. Um, was this internalization of, well, what's wrong with me? It must be because of this, mm. right? And so then for the longest time, probably all the way through college, I thought to myself to stay away from other Asian folk. Mm. And the other thing, so that I've worked on for a very long time. Mm. Um, but I still catch myself kind of like, oh, so-and-so has an accent. I got to watch out for them. They may be super conservative. They may have like certain ideas that I don't align with, um, all these assumptions and, and negativity, right? And so it's almost, it, it's, it's really a self-loathing. The other piece that I've been only starting to work on, especially, I'm, I'm kind of a toddler Christian, I guess. I came to Christ in 2008. Um, and... Um, that has been, I have a fear of white people. That's, I mean, any, my husband knows this, like we walk into a room and if it's predominantly white folk, I just tense up. And that's really a, a big part of that is because I was physically, verbally, emotionally abused from the time I was three every day in school um, from peers and teachers and my neighborhoods and just all the way through. And so I still have this kind of defense mechanism of just being like, oh gosh, okay. Um, and then just kind of, even in my birthing class this last week, just like the first birthing class, it was a room full of white folk and I was just like, okay, you know, I've, I've had to work on this the last few sessions to be like, okay, we're all, we're all pregnant. <laughs> we're all going through the same anatomical stuff. Like <laughs> heartburn, heartburn, yes. <laughs> um, you know, and it, it's just been a really slow process of just like, I, I can talk in this room. I think I can share with this. I can get to know these people mm -hmm. as, you know, future moms and dads. And so are we. And so we can do this. And, but it's, I think becoming a Christian has been 
the biggest, biggest thing that has allowed me to just slowly, slowly open my heart through relationships and, and church community and, and through gospel and through mm. Jesus, really. Mm. I might cry. Um, I think that what you said about becoming a Christian is like, I, I think we take it for granted because we're in church, but like, there is nothing that would even get me close to a reconciliation of lifestyle that wasn't for Jesus. Like, um, I think that there are two basic foundational human gut feelings, and it is love and it is fear. And, I mean, I, I talked to my parents. My dad actually is crazy racist. Like, the older he gets, the worse it gets. And it gets, it's just, it's debilitatingly frustrating to me. And I think the only thing that's different is that Christ has enabled me to live in a life of love on my best days when I'm following him. And that fear creeps in on the side, and Satan uses it very wisely to say, you are different from them. They should be feared. You are, they are a threat to you. Something is different about them, which makes them scary and makes them uncontrollable, and it means that you are no longer in control of your life, which means you have to fear them and outlash against them and hate them. And... I've realized very recently that when I talk to my dad, I talk to him literally every day. Mm. And it is tiring and painful um, to hear the things that he says and thinks. But he's coming out of life full of fear. He's afraid of everything. He's afraid of everything and everyone. And he doesn't know the freedom that can exist when you really just love someone. Um, and we argue and we talk and we go back and forth and it has been until very recently that I realized that I'm saying something different but we're saying it in the same way. Mm. He's arguing, he's adamant, he's passionate and I'm arguing and I'm adamant and I'm passionate and, and it's the same argument. We're saying the same exact thing. And then I ask Christ, what on earth am I supposed to do with this person who you have given me to love, who I have been raised by? and yet who is flawed and sinful and doesn't seem to care. Um, and he is telling me, he's teaching me, Christ is teaching me, that the only option is to humble myself and to lay myself down before my dad because he's never going to hear this gospel of love if I just keep telling him about it. He's only going to hear it if I show it to him. Um, and that might mean my ego gets damaged and my pride, uh, because I want to be right. I want him to know that I am right. Um, but he might think in the short term that I am wrong and be satisfied with his rightness. But maybe over time, he will see that as Christ works in me, uh, Christ is working in him through example. And um, I don't know. I want him to see that my daughter is being babysat by people who look different from her, who call other people aunt and uncle, who are different from her, who hug and embrace and live life with this different thing that he never comprehended and that she's fine and that she's richer for it and that God is protecting her and that God still loves her and that there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, and I don't know how to reconcile all of us to each other, um, but I think that God has given me my dad. And that is like the place that I am going to continue to work for reconciliation. And maybe through his grace, my dad will actually reconcile some of his fear to God's love and then go and do it somewhere else. Mm. That's great. Um, there's two things I would say. One is uh, somebody mentioned it, just uh, a firm like self-evaluation about what you think and believe and how you act. Um, that's really honest. Um, Pastor Pete and I were actually talking, and I, he recalled a conversation that we had had mm -hmm. when I first started going to Newcom. Um, and it, it wasn't until I was um, became a Christian when I was 19, and then a few years later, as I started to understand my own ethnic identity, that I began to realize how much I feared Latinos. Mm -hmm. um, being half Latino but growing up monoculturally white, I was terrified of being around Latinos. 
Um, a lot of that had to do with my own self-identity. I don't belong, I'm not Latino enough, I don't speak the language, but there was also prejudice. Uh, there was a lot of racism in that. Um, and it's been a long journey to get where I am now, where still I'm uncomfortable, but it's, it's, it's a different experience. Um, one of the things that was key for me in that, and I think is key for a lot of us, is understanding our own racism and prejudice. Um, because there's going to get to a point where we're going to ask ourselves the question, am I a racist? And when we ask ourselves that question, the, the image we have when we think of a racist, we think of Hitler and neo-Nazis and the Klan, and we say to ourselves, well, I'm not that, therefore I am not a racist. Um, what we need to understand is, like uh, Dan said, we all have racism. So I, don't, I wouldn't call myself a racist, but I know I have racism and prejudice in my heart. And that those two things can be true at the same time. That we don't have to have an either-or situation. So either I'm perfect and I'm not racist at all, or I'm total racist and a Klan member and I should, you know, just put the hood on. You know, there's a, there can be middle ground. There can be two things going on there. The second thing I would say is relationship. Um, if your friends, your friend groups, if everyone looks like you, that's a problem. You're not going to understand what's going on with people um, if you don't have friends uh, who don't look like you. So I recently took a new job within our varsity. I'm working with uh, a woman named Jazzy Johnson, who the Northwestern folks probably know. Um, she's a brilliant African-American woman um, who I, we started working together right before Ferguson happened. And I got to see her journey um, the things, the pain she felt, the anger she felt, and I got to understand a clear glimpse of it that I wouldn't have understood if I was just talking to my wife, who, you know, we would have been angry about Ferguson. We thought, oh, that's terrible, but it wouldn't have been real. The pain wouldn't have been real in the way that it was, um, seeing it through Jazzy's eyes. Um, the point of caution there is um, black people are not here to fix you. Um, they can't be your black friend who talks to you about racism all the time, because that's exhausting. <laughs> Um, so when you're trying to make friends with someone who doesn't look like you don't be like hey Tim will you be my black friend um, maybe it's just hey Tim do you want to hang out can we get to know each other a little bit and then as the relationship grows there are questions as you have built up trust there are questions you can ask there are things you can talk about that if you're just coming to a black person and saying fix me make me not racist anymore that's not their job that's between you and Jesus, but they can be a part of that. Miss Angela Walker, would you like to have the last word? Oh, why not? Um, um, the journey of thinking about racial reconciliation, um, for me, I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh, I feel tired. Um, and I just, I'm like, I'm like, I just want to crawl in my bed where it's safe and I don't have to think about it. Um, because when I'm sitting in these conversations, I'm just reminded um, that it hurts, that it's hard, um, that it's cost a lot to walk this out. Um, and sometimes I don't want to do it anymore. And I've said... Can I, can you, God, can you just leave me alone? Because if this is what the calling is, I don't want to do it. Can it just look like this, where I feel safe and it's easy? Um, but um, because there are tears about it, that must be that God is doing something and he is trying to get my attention um, to remind me to stay in it. Um, to stay in the journey of speaking, um, to stay in the journey of grieving, to stay in the journey of being joyful, um, to stay in the journey of saying when things are not right. Um, when Trayvon Martin was killed, I was at a church that had been out for a very long time. I had been there at least like probably eight or nine years. And when I went to church that Sunday, no one said anything about Trayvon Martin. It was as if the world was just the same as it had been every day. 
I sat in church and I was like, I've been with these people for eight and nine years Mm -hmm. and no one has said anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And that broke my heart because I felt that it was easy for that church, and it was a predominantly white church, and it still is, um, for them just to accept me as mm-hmm. Angela, but they didn't want to accept me as a black woman. Mm. Um, and I needed them to accept all of me. And so I wrote a letter to the church, and I read it to the church, and I said, this is not, this is not the way things are supposed to be. Mm. And I shared that lament with them. And I think that's part of what I'm just being reminded today. We need to be reminded what our calling is. Some of us have very different callings on this panel. Some of you have very different callings in this room. But you need to be attentive what God is calling you to do, who he's calling you to speak to, who's calling you to challenge, who he's calling you to love, who he's calling you um, to be friends with, um, who he's calling you into fellowship with. And I think as a black woman, and from, particularly from my white brothers and sisters, as we walk through issues of, not just issues, and um, walk through life together, being, reckon, being willing to recognize the pain um, and not being dismissive of it, I think that has been the most hurtful thing. Mm. Um, and that, that would be the challenge. If we truly love one another... It's not just like roses and balloons and all nice. Love is hard. That's right. And I think that's what we are called to walk into, the hardness and the difficulty of love, the rawness of love. Yes. Um, That's what the beloved community should be about. Yes. I think that is part of, that is part of Dr. King's dream. Um, this beloved community where it's real and it's raw and it's hard and we might look at each other and be like, I'm not doing this with you today, but then I come back again tomorrow and we're going to try again. We're going to keep doing it. And so um, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about for myself how I can be more vulnerable in this journey of racial reconciliation and not being afraid of saying, not today, but maybe tomorrow. And having people willing to walk with me as I do that. Because there's a lot of anger. I do. I have a lot of anger. And that was part of the, the hesitancy of saying yes. But I know for me, I can't accommodate to making other people feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I have been doing. So it's not about accommodating. And it's not just about, oh, you're, are you okay, white person, to hear my anger? No, today you're going to hear it if you truly yeah. love me. Okay. okay. That's All right, good. we can do it. Yeah, <laughs> we can do it. You know, and just recognizing that, um, the pain of people of color and not ignoring that, the pain that white people may experience when they hear people of color talk about the pain, um, but just really experiencing that real and raw love um, and that we need Jesus. We need Jesus. So that cross matters, but our lives together matter as well. One of my friends and mentors in this journey um, has been uh, Brenda Salter McNeil. Some of you guys know her. And Rick Richardson. And they wrote a book called The Heart of Racial Righteousness. In preparation for today, I spent some time last night just quietly just skimming through the book, and I was reminded of this, and we're going to invite you to participate in communion. And Pastor Michael, I know we may have already have communion service, but I'm wondering if we could change it the last minute and have our panel serve communion. The healing of the racial and ethnic divide has to begin at the cross say how and I speak to two very different groups of people one we're reminded today that when you understand the gospel and what it is that Jesus accomplished it deeply humbles us out of our pride out of our arrogance out of our superiority and the gospel makes it impossible to look down at someone else because of their race because of their gender and even class. 
Paul says in Ephesians 2.16 that on the cross, God put to death the hatred, the hostility between the Jews and Gentiles. But you and I both know nothing died on the cross but Jesus. God put to death the hostility. 1 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin. Do you know what the gospel is? We're the ones who've been hostile to each other, and God should have been hostile to us. We're the ones that have destroyed each other, and God should have destroyed us. But the destruction and the hostility didn't fall on us. Who did it fall on? Say it with me. It fell on Jesus. In Hebrews 2.21, the author has the audacity to say, so therefore, Jesus calls us brothers. Jesus looks at an inferior race and says, I call you brother, and I call you sister. If that gospel, if this gospel snaps in your heart, who can you possibly be ashamed of and look down on? Who could we possibly, if this snaps into our heart, who do we possibly look at and with arrogance and pride say, I'm better than you? Secondly, the gospel doesn't just tumble us, it emboldens us. How? And I'm so thankful some of you shared honestly. Some of us struggle with internalized racism. Some of us struggle with sense of, am I worth anything? Some of us struggle because of what we've been told by our culture and our family about our race and ethnicity. We're ashamed of who we are. There's even self-hatred here because of the lies we've believed. And I just want to ask you this question. For those of us who sit here today wondering, am I a person of worth? Am I a person of value? Who does he do this for? And by the way, when he dies for you and me, he dies for all of us. That includes our race, our ethnicity, our gender, and our class. He dies for all of us. And for anybody sitting here today saying, does the gospel and the cross really matter? If not for the gospel and the cross, how do you and I walk away with a sense of affirmation, approval, or sense of identity, frankly, that says there's nothing that the world can do to take this away? And let me say this, it is that love that Christ has for us that must propel us to love him back, and it's that love that he has for us that enables us to love ourselves rightly and love each other. So I ask you, as we celebrate this and remember on a monthly basis, when we say Christ died and rose again, does it humble you? Does it embolden you? Does it prompt you to say, I want to be a reconciling ambassador for Christ in my world, the world out there? I'm thankful that it was been said one way or another, if not for the gospel and the cross, what power, what motivation, what ability do we have? None. None. 